to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, where we talk about national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. And I want to welcome you to the show. It is Wednesday because, of course, this is your Wednesday morning voice. If it's 10 a.m. on a Wednesday, this is the voice that you hear um, here on WNHHLP. So it, you can find this show. You can find it uh, live on WNHHLP um, you, on the website, newhavenindependent.org. You can find it live on New Haven Independent Facebook page. You can listen live stream right online if you go to newhavenindependent.org and you click the link on the upper left side, the little radio link, you will find um, the live stream there. So go click it, save it, make sure that you're listening to all of our shows. Today we are talking um, we're going to have a conversation and we want to include you into in the conversation so uh, you can actually call in. So that is awesome. We have some uh, we have a call in uh, this morning and I want to uh, welcome you to listen and to give us feedback and to uh call in and tell us what you think. I'm excited today because I have one of my favorite people here, Dr. Misa Akwar. Thank you for joining me. Awesome. Awesome. So today we are talking about black trauma and the legacy of racism. Um, not only is Dr. Akbar an amazing mental health professional psychologist, but uh, she also has a book coming out, uh, Urban Trauma, the Legacy of Racism. That's it. Awesome. All right. I got it. I got the name. <laughs> I knew it. See, see, I do read people's bios. <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Um, so let me tell you a little bit um, about Dr. Akbar. Dr. Akbar is the author of a groundbreaking book coming out called Urban Trauma, A Legacy of Racism. She received her PhD in clinical psychology from St. Louis University in 2003. She completed her pre and post doctoral work at the Yale Child Study City Center School of Medicine, and she is the only board-certified child and adolescent psychologist who lives and works um, in Connecticut and holds a number of certifications in various areas of treatment. Dr. Akbar is also an assistant clinical professor at the Yale Child Study Center. Um, I find it really fascinating that you are the only board-certified child and adolescent psychologist psychologist in Connecticut. Well, actually, it's funny because I just did a board certification examination on Friday. I was up in Rhode Island and uh, my mentor who, who um, Dr. Um, Greta Francis, who was the one who actually uh, chaired my exam, I said, Greta, um, am I still the only one, you know, board certified child and adolescent psychologist? And she said, no, someone just passed the exam. It was a seasoned psychologist um, <laughs> And uh, he, so now he's among the ranks, but we did look up some data. And so I am the first woman of color to receive in Connecticut a board certification. And I am still the only woman 
Um, so that's still wow, ranks that's, up yeah. there. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, 2017 to be the first woman of color um, to have received board certification in Connecticut and to still be the only woman um, who lives and is licensed here in Connecticut wow. is pretty amazing. Now, why is being a child and adolescent psychologist so different? Like, so obviously we have lots of children and adolescents that need psychiatric care uh, and therapy in Connecticut. So are they just, just treated at by general psychologists and what a makes great, a great question. And it's funny, you know, because people read my credentials and it's so interesting that you've picked up on that, but they skirt right past that. <laughs> um, but it's such an important distinction because the reality is, is that, um, you know, in terms of psychologists, right, if you look nationwide in terms of psychologists, only 5% are of color. Mm. 5%. Think about nationwide. You know, you're uh -huh. talking about thousands of psychologists and only 5%. Uh -huh. Of that 5%, you're talking about like, you know, the most minute level that actually get to board certification in general. So think about all the psychologists that reside just here in Connecticut. You know, we, we've been blessed with having uh, lots of resources here in terms of mental health. And uh, above and beyond all of those, I have expertise in board certification. And when, I, when it's funny, when I talk to my colleagues about it, they coin it as like the Navy SEALs of psychology, <laughs> right? And, and think about it, right? You can be part of the Navy, mm -hmm. um, but when you're a SEAL, that right. gives you a higher level of distinction in terms of your expertise, right? Mm -hmm. um, because of the rigor that you have to go through in order to get board certification. Mm -hmm. um, so beyond my PhD and beyond my fellowship at Yale, um, I then went ahead and went beyond that to get board certified. Um, so it's a distinction that I have that not only proclaims my expertise in this area, you know, so I'm not just one, someone that's talking about urban trauma because I decided to wake up one day and start talking about it. I'm talking about urban trauma because I have a level of expertise that goes beyond the majority of psychologists, um, you know, that are just, um, you know, that have just gone up to the level of, of their PhD. So I'm very proud of that distinction and my level of expertise in that area. And I'm proud to say that now I am the one who sits on the board to allow those who are coming in um, to be board certified. So, awesome. um, which I just did one on Friday. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a really important um, uh, a designation and it creates an area of expertise for me where I feel very confident in speaking uh, the language of not only psychology, but what transcends psychology and affects our communities of color. Mm. And that's what I did with the book, right? I didn't want to just house it within the box of psychology mm. because there's already a lot of rhetoric that comes in and out of our communities about psychology. I wanted to push past that and to really understand our psyche, the black psyche, understanding what happens to us over generations when you're exposed to a variety of different complex traumas, right? Mm. And in specifically, how does the urban community adapt, adjust, survive, mm. you know, and become resilient sometimes in some cases and in other cases go into complete hopelessness and despair mm. because they can't take anymore, you know, um, the, the, the generations of compound trauma that have happened, right? Mm. And so I was fascinated by trying to uncover and understand and peel back the layers, unpack all of this and make sense of it 
mm-hmm. so that anyone in the world can read this book and in the most simplest terms really understand um, how that can look in people. So, so in in terms of your book, um, did you go back and do it in a historical aspect? Yeah. Um, so I did. I did. And I felt compelled that I needed to. Um, because a lot of times when we are talking about um, common day, everyday incidents that happen um, in communities of color, in the black community in particular, we go um, to a place where we're just seeing it for what it is today. And I'm not a proponent of saying that we have to live in our past because I think that people who get stuck in the past have trouble moving forward in terms of new opportunities. But what I do believe is that the past informs our future, our present and future state. Mm -hmm. And that if we don't understand the past and if we don't understand history and if we don't have knowledge about that, we are um, exposed to repeating the same cycles over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And we have no context for which we can stop those cycles, right? Mm. So I needed to go back to history. And that's what I did with the book. And I went all the way back to slavery. Because to me, if we're going to talk about the biggest incident of of trauma in this country, Mm. you cannot ignore slavery. You Mm. can't ignore going back to that moment where the first slave was torn you know, from their homeland, from their home country, um, and brought here, you know, to Jamestown, Virginia. Mm. Um, and then the the sequelae of events that happen, mm. you know, from the early 1600s on. And I'm not even talking about slaves in the Caribbean because I, I couldn't fit all of that, you know, in the book. So I, <laughs> We're I had just to talking start. about the United States. Yeah. Okay. All right. All <laughs> that's right. a whole, that's actually another book. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so, so I, I guess the, the, the next question that one begs to ask is one of the uh, comments that you read a lot from people is, oh, why do you always have to go back to slavery? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I wasn't a slave. My mother wasn't a slave or my I'm, I was I don't own slaves or my mother didn't own slave. That was so far back. What do what do you say to people? How does slavery and past oppressions affect where we are now? Well, slavery was rooted in racism point blank, right? And all we've seen up to today in 2017 is different variations of what racism looks like as our our species and our country evolve. So if we get past slavery and its roots and racism there, the physical abuse, the torment, the sexual abuse, um, you know, the, the complete disregard for human life, um, the, the fact that people were treated as property and not as humans just and only for the color of their skin, right? Because there, there's no other distinction. Mm. So you can't tell me it's not rooted in racism. It's absolutely rooted in racism. Um, there are va- variations of that throughout history, you know, and we can talk about the fact that slavery then led to Jim Crow, and then redlining and convict leasing and, you know, all the way up to mass incarceration 
And now what we like to call these like subtle microaggressions and unconscious bias. It's all rooted in racism, no matter how we slice it. Mm. We can call it whatever we want to call it, right? And I can mm. get so sophisticated with my, the language around it. <laughs> it's still racism once you, once you peel back the layers. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we may not be, you know, um, uh, in a situation where there's lynching, and that's arguable, actually, in a lot of different ways, right? That's true. <laughs> um, and, and there's, like, public um, participation and again arguable because mm-hmm. look at charlottesville mm-hmm. um right uh of of these types of demonstrations of racism it's more subtle now but it's alive and well and we know it and so my my point in the book is then how do we continue to deal with the trauma right if if the physical component and i'm going to quote that has been removed in terms of the dehumanization of of uh black people here in america um What's happened to our mental, you know, mm. uh, our mental psyche our, as, as we continue to have these abusive, uh, oppressive um, institutions continue to dehumanize us in different kinds of ways? Mm. You know, and I always go back to the quote, which Bob Marley made famous, but it really came from Marcus Garvey, right? Um, you can you have to emancipate yourself from mental slavery, right? Mm. None but ourselves can free our minds. Mm. And the idea behind that, and I think it's just so powerful because you can be, um, you know, there, there, there was a moment where this physical aspect of slavery was removed, but the mental slavery has remained. Right. Right. Um, and, and there are biological studies that confirm this. I mean, there, mm. you know, I, and I go into that in the book. There's a whole section just on biology mm. so that people even understand, not just from a color perspective and from a discrimination perspective, but from their internal biology, what ends up happening because of the. I've read a lot of information about how um, racism and discrimination or living in an environment even that that you are subject to racism and discrimination literally changes the DNA. It literally puts markers on your DNA, which makes you more susceptible to other mental health issues like depression, uh, like bipolar. So the fact that it, that it's not just a perception of, Oh, if you don't think about it, everything is going to be okay. Right. Let's just, let's just not mention it's really interesting. I had a, um, a, a conversation on social media, um, and I shared a, I shared, um, I think it was a video that talked about the, the racist roots of lullabies in children's songs. And I had a, a, a Facebook a friend who commented, I wish this would just go away. Why do we have to keep talking about it? <laughs> right? And I'm like, you know, that, that was a long conversation, but it was so I've heard that more than one time. Like if we stop talking about it, then it then we can just like it go but go to normal, right? But who does that benefit? It, it only benefits the the the, <laughs> the oppressor, not the oppressed. You got it exactly <laughs> um, right. And I actually will argue that the reason that we haven't been able to heal is because we haven't had the platform to have a voice to mm-hmm. talk about it, mm-hmm. to talk to really talk about the pain without people having to say. Come on, right. this happened 500 years ago. Why do you guys keep right. bringing it up? Right. Keep bringing it up because we haven't gotten through the trauma. <laughs> right, right, right. It comes up generation after generation because we're still experiencing racism and oppression. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the things that I, I'm, uh, conversations that I have that I've had more than I'd like to is 
um, uh, around bringing it up. And it's been with both friends and family and people. And I always say, you know, no one will tell a Jewish person, oh, just stop talking about the Holocaust. It was a long time ago. Right. But people will very quickly tell a black person, oh, you know, that was a long time ago. Uh, you just get over Jim Crow. Now, even if we just go back to Jim Crow and slavery, we don't even have to go all the way back to slavery. And it continues to go on, even though the Holocaust is over. But it's something that, you know, there was a Holocaust museum in the United States before there was an African-American history museum. Right. So the black trauma is is the elephant in the room where people don't want to talk about it because we don't want to face. And I think, and I think that that's part of the reason why we have, we continue to have the racial issues we have in America is because we have an approach. And, I, and I'm sure you as a psychology psychologist knows this even on a micro level, right? If people don't deal with their issues, they don't just go away. That's why they come to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look at trauma from like a different perspective, you know, and I like to be careful about this because I don't like to compare traumas. I think that everybody's trauma um, should be honored, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that um, we, we shouldn't make one person's traumatic event um, bigger or greater than the other. But just for the sake of, you know, argument or for the sake of making comparisons, um, you know, Let's take what's happening right now in Houston, right? Uh, you can imagine for the people who are losing their homes, who are currently um, having to vacate, you know, what, what they've known to be their only source of, of uh, safety, um, that have lost pretty much everything, that they're going to experience some type of trauma, right? Mm. We can just make that assumption. So imagine that we tell those people, you know, you just really need to get over it. Like the storm is gone. The storm is done. Right. You know, like whatever you've lost your house, like get, just get over it. Like, let's just move on so we can all live in harmony. Imagine the experience of that person mm. being told that, well, that's the same thing that black people feel all the time when mm. those comments are, are stated or when, um, when those things are minimized, like, you know, well, no, it's, it's really not about racism or it's really doesn't date back to slavery. It does. And the minute that we can acknowledge that, the minute that the healing can begin, because I think for us and for many communities of color, the cry is, let me speak my truth and let me stand in this truth. And all I need you to do if you want to be a good ally is to honor my space, mm. you know, honor that space because we've had to, you know, by hook or by crook, by submission or whether we wanted to or not, we've had to honor your space. Mm. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So so I think that if if we can create uh, an environment where that voice is allowed and we can have those very real conversations with us having to carry the guilt of the ally. Mm. Right. Because that's part of it. Mm. Part of the reason why allies don't want to deal with it or so-called allies, white folks in general. It's because they don't want to deal with the guilt that it resonates with them, that possibly their ancestors, their lineage, mm -hmm. you know, were slave owners or, or abused people in this kind of way. Mm. But to some extent, that's part of understanding history, mm. you know, and you can't right those wrongs. That's why it's in history. But what you can do is make a conscious choice to break the cycle and breaking the cycle doesn't mean ignoring it or pushing it to the side or minimizing it as if it doesn't exist. Mm. Breaking the cycle comes in allowing that voice to be heard 
and supporting people of color and in particular the black community in the way that they need to be supported, not the way that allies want to prescribe, Mm -hmm. you know, or force, you know, healing Mm -hmm. or resiliency to look like in, in the black community. And, and that's, you know, um, I don't get into tons of that in the book, um, but there is going to be some teaching around allyship mm. um, when I start to do uh, workshops and trainings and speaking engagements around it. Um, you know, the publisher felt that we needed to create a separate space mm. for the allies that didn't belong in the book. Mm. Right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> because we need to, we needed to honor the voice, Absolutely. right? Um, and 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 I agreed with that, which is why I took that piece out. Mm. Um, so, but but there will be a space to be able to have those discussions because I do believe that if you want to be a good ally, that there is a formula for that. Mm. But the formula doesn't come from them creating the formula. Mm. It comes from us being able to create the the formula, and then you know coming into um, a discussion about what are the right ways to proceed and and not. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka. And today we are talking to Dr. Maisa Akbar, um, a... Connecticut, one of Connecticut's only women and woman of color board certified child and adolescent psychologists. And we're talking about uh, black trauma and the legacy of racism and her new book coming out. Um, let's talk. Let, let's talk a little bit more about the how does having a space to voice your pain benefit? A person so you know we you just talked about you know uh, allies being able to listen and why is that important and is the the plethora of marches that we've seen is that what that is um okay i'm gonna answer your last question first <laughs> all right because <laughs> right. i actually have a lot of opinion around that people may not agree with me on this but it's you know it's the great thing about being an author that it's all about your opinion. <laughs> you you don't matter you are. Right. You don't have think. to agree. Right. You can love me. You can <laughs> right. hate me. Right. Doesn't really matter. I hope people love me. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk about that. Um, it's so interesting. I, um, you know, my husband and I, we just celebrated twenty years uh, on the 9th of, of August. Awesome. And anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, we were with a group of friends, and. Uh, I was talking about this um, whole situation with Colin uh, Kaepernick, right? Mm -hmm. And the NFL. And so I was telling one of my friends, listen, we need to boycott the NFL. Now, I'm not a big football fan, but, you know, I'm like, you know, so we're having this discussion and there's a bunch of us there and, you know, emotions get really high because people get very, very, Mm. you know, they get worked up about their football, right? right. Um, and so, and I should have known the pit that I was walking into, but, you know, <laughs> as usual, I'm opinionated. I got things to say. Um, I should have left that one alone because my friend's husband tends to be a very strong football fan. And he was like, I'm not going to stop watching, you know, uh, the season when it comes on. Um, you know, Kaepernick did what he did and that's his choice. And now what am I supposed to do? Stop watching football because someone can't get a job? 
right? Mm -hmm. And um, I, my argument was like, this is so much bigger than that. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this, this is a statement. It's, it's our collective power. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that we can, we need to check people and we need to let them know that when we as a community make a decision that we're no longer going to support, you know, people's BS, then they're going to feel the financial impact of that. Mm. They're going to feel what it means when in solidarity we stand against something, right? Mm. And so when I think about the marches, right, this is the way that I think about it. If that is what you feel compelled to do, to voice um, your sentiments against injustice and against racism and against, you know, um, oppression, then do it. Do every single march that you need to do to make that your mission, your calling, the thing that you do. If boycotting the NFL is what you can do to voice your, you know, disgust and, and, and your stance on being uh, a person that will advocate for social justice and for racial justice, then do that. Mm. You know, if serving the homeless in poor communities is what you can do, then do that. If it's mentoring a kid, uh, someone who's in the re in a reentry program, um, someone that that needs your help, do that. We have to, as a collective, make a decision about where we're going to invest our energy. And I'm not saying that we all will have the same calling to invest it in the same thing. My calling was to say, hey, I'm going to make a mark in this world. I was a kid that needed somebody like me growing up. And my calling in life is to be that person for mm -hmm. others. And the, the many lives that I can touch from here until I'm taken, that's what I'm going to do. That's my calling. And I am not going to stop. I will be relentless in that pursuit, mm. right? And so I'm saying to you, if your pursuit is to stop watching the NFL to do that, then do that. Mm. So I, you know, marches are not my thing. I'm not going to do a march. But what I'm going to do is within the privy of what I can do, what I know how to do, mm. I'm going to give it my very all, right? Mm. Um, so I applaud those people that, in every march and in every rally can be there and be the voice for us because we need a little bit of that everywhere. We need a lot of that everywhere mm. and everyone has a position to play. And there are some people that can play a financial position, mm. you know, and that can think about, you know, how economically we can shift and change our communities. Mm. And if you have the power to do that, I'm challenging you today, you know, people of color or allies alike, to make that commitment, but make mm. some type of commitment, right, right? Right. Because if you do nothing, you're part of the problem. Right. Right. Yeah. How does it, how does that, um, does it give people a better way of coping by doing things by actually taking an action? Right. Is that a, is that a mental way of coping with everything mm. that's going on? So, let me just peel back that question. Are you saying that if it's a person who is watching all of this, you know, these traumatic experiences happening, are, is that a way of coping? Or are you saying, you know, um, if I'm an ally 
um, or if I'm in a person that I'm, I'm not in a position where I'm going to be affected by what some of, of, you know, some of what the communities of colors are being affected by, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to use that as a coping strategy or both. So both, both okay. as a person of, so I guess the, 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 where the question comes from is, you know, I have friends who are just like, there is no hope. I go home and I have a glass of wine and that's all I can do. Right. <laughs> right. So I'm wondering if making a conscious effort, so it doesn't mean you have to march because everybody doesn't march. Um, I'm one of those people, you know, I have, I have other things that I specifically do. Marching this. is not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but is, is actually consciously doing something, a coping mechanism mentally because i'm thinking like with all of the things that's going on right now in the in america we all have to find a way of coping with it mentally right so uh some of it for black people is like okay well now basically everybody's seeing what we've been talking about all this time right (laughs) so for a lot of black people but for some people it's like oh my god i cannot believe that this still exists in america it's literally a a culture shock. They feel like, you know, I had one friend who uh, lives in, I believe, Guilford. And when she found out that Guilford went to Trump as a city, she's like, I walk down the street and I don't know where I am because I know that my neighbors and my friend actually voted for him. So she was literally in her own town. She's in a culture shock felt like she was in a different place the next day how do people how what's the best way i guess now we're getting into more self-care what's the best way of coping with what is our new reality it really is a new reality (laughs) um even for people of color who this stuff has been microaggressions and 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 subtle thus far the fact that it's so overt now is a new reality that you have to like before you may, um, you know, walk down the street and you know that someone may give you a bad look or may not be kind enough to let you in a parking space or whatever. Now you literally fear physical attack. So it's a new reality. How do we cope? I think I, I th- let me answer it this way. And it's a complex response right and and i'm not saying that i have a one-size-fits-all but but i have some theories around it um let's take the example about you know walking around a store and being you know followed or racially profiled right um it it would be what's happening now with the videos and uh everything that you're able to see live on demand Mm -hmm. is the final validation that this Thing, and I'm going to call it a thing because it's a massive thing. It's kind of like the vortex and the matrix, right? <laughs> um, actually does exist, right? Like a lot of times uh, when you're a black person and you're talking about those experiences and you're saying, you know, I can't believe that they're watching me the way that they're watching me. You know, people will say, oh, come on, you're just exaggerating. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's really not a big deal, Um And then for things now to be so blatant and so clear and that you can't argue it, that's like you're in the store, your friend says, you're exaggerating. And the store manager says, no, I am following you because you're black. 
right <laughs> right like that that's what's happening <laughs> no actually i am following you because right, you're black right. so it's like the person's like you see <laughs> I, i've been telling you all along that that this is what was happening right so that's the phenomenon right it's right. like finally there's like evidence right and it's like con- con- confirmatory there's no battling this right. and so people now are like oh wow you know and it's a shock to the system when it's you know can you imagine if the manager's like no i actually am following you because you're black you know like that you're almost like what wait what just happened um so there there is that shock value that comes and and i think that that's what's happening with black people that they're like you know one incident after another after another is is confirming the underlying feelings that have been there forever and for generations that everybody just shoot away mm. and said that it was, so, it was like something like almost like we were psychotic, something that we made up, right, right. but we weren't all along. Right. This is the truth. Right. This is real. You know, um, I mean, take for example, Michelle um, Alexander's book in terms of mass incarceration, mm. right? Right. That was, we already, how many, before that book came out, how many times, you know, would we say, you know, our black men are being locked up, right? right? That th- there is a conspiracy Mm. around this and people are like oh there you go with your right. conspiracy theories again right, right? right. like no they're only getting locked up because they're doing something wrong and she lays out page by page by page mm. how it is the new jim crow right. right right and so there's like this confirmatory evidence now that you're seeing and it is coming out every single day mm. by writings from authors by videos from civilians from people you know and so that's the feeling. And so what I position in the book when it comes to that is that even if we didn't experience urban trauma, let's say, you know, you grew up in a, you know, in a middle class home with loving parents um, and you're a black family that that made it, that actually was able to uh, fight every single uh, thing that that usually counts against us. Right. Mm-hmm. And that you don't really you can't relate to that. Why well, position that because of the genetic linkage to this, mm. the exposure, the consistent exposure to the videos and to the media and to the conversations around this in some instances are now percolating ideas um, or, or sentiments of urban trauma and people that would have originally never had it. Mm. Mm. So that now you may walk around with some of the very same characteristics as someone who has experienced full-blown urban trauma Mm. um, because of the vicarious, the way that we've seen these things happen, you know, and you may not have all of the characteristics. There's seven of them, but you may have some that now put you into what I call in the book survival mode. Mm. What are, what are some of those characteristics of, of urban trauma? I'm not allowed to expose them yet. Okay. Um, but you will hear about them on, you know, um, the, the debut of the book comes out on the 22nd okay. um, in Washington, D.C. at the Valuing Black Lives Summit. Um, that is a, uh, a summit uh, that coordinated by the Community Healing Network mm-hmm. from our very own Enola Aird here in New Haven and the Association mm-hmm. of Black Psychologists. Um, it's probably going to be my proudest moment, you yeah. know, uh, where I can 
uh, yeah, I, I couldn't have thought of a better place to debut a book. Okay. You know, no matter how many different um, offers I got about it, this is where I want it to be. Awesome. Um, with my people and debuting it in a place where I know it's going to be honored and loved in a way that, um, you know, that that's going to be far beyond what I can even think about. So will it be available for purchase on the 22nd? Um, it probably won't be available until the week after. Okay. Um, but uh, we're working very rapidly on that. I was okay. hoping we were going to have it ready, but there, you know, you know how it is with this kind yes, of stuff. I do. I do. So uh, one of the things that I did want to ask you about, because we we only have a, uh, about eight more minutes of the show, is um, how do we identify our own personal biases? Mm and get past that when you say we who do you mean both white people black people like everybody has a bias of some sort yes and so even if i don't have a bias against white people i may have a bias against mexicans i may have I, i everybody has some type of bias how do you identify that and can it be identified on a professional level we know that we have a lot of issues with police and racial profiling there's issues inside of the hospital system of uh, there's been uh, uh, articles and books written about you know uh, african american women being seen by doctors as being more pain tolerant and so there's a lot of issues around the way black people are perceived how do we on a personal level and on a professional institutional level, identify uh, uh, biases, racial biases, and what can we do about it? Um, You know, I think it takes a lot of insight and Mm self-reflection. And a lot of people are not willing to to take on the journey of examining themselves. Mm. You have to think about sort of the masses, right? What, What seems more comfortable and easy for people? Well, what's more comfortable for me if if there's a, you know, or and for many others, if let's say there's an example like this um, where we're having a tense moment and we're, when you're talking about racial bias, they're, they're not easy conversations to have, not even with oneself, right? Mm-hmm. When you're positioned in that kind of situation, it's much easier to blame something else, mm-hmm. you know, some other entity, some other person, you know, to externalize the the responsibility over that. So what 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 I'm going to argue and what I'm going to challenge people to do is to start stop looking at others and start looking at self. Mm. The minute that you can examine what your role is in every situation is a minute where you can start finding insight and eventual enlightenment around the person that you want to be. A lot of us live in incongruency, meaning that there's a difference b- between the person that we show our outside person and the person who we are inside. And those two people never really reconcile and have a good relationship. Mm. And the reason that they don't is because there's a insight is the bridge between both. Mm. Right. And if we don't create a bridge between the outside person and the inside person to really understand how we're going to act and function and be and who we want to be creating identity around that, then we're never going to be able to check our biases. Mm. So so we have to start to acknowledge that there's a vulnerability that comes along with doing that. And there's a whole lot of shame that trails right behind it. Mm. Right. Cause can you imagine like the person that eventually gets the courage to say, I'm a racist <laughs> today. I practice racial bias. Right. You know, when I didn't offer you that job because of your name or because you were black, 
when I looked behind me or locked my doors when I was driving, mm. because you look like you could hurt me or could be a criminal, you know? So until we start to acknowledge that and blame others for it, um, then then we'll, we're never gonna get to the point where people can check their bias. Mm. Um, and, and that's really the first step. And then you can start having those discussions and you can have those discussions without being defensive. Because that's the other thing is that sometimes people rush into having those discussions mm. and what ends up happening is that all they're doing is defending their position. Right. Well, then we're not really acknowledging your racial bias. Well, all, all you're doing is defending why you did it and, and positioning that everybody else is at fault for it and mm. that you had nothing to do with it. But the common denominator is you. So I don't understand, right? Like this would be my discussion with people um, once we can get to the point where we're acknowledging that. Mm. It's important to do that because we're not going to be able to move from the space that we're in, unless we start to acknowledge the racial biases that we have. Mm -hmm. Awesome. We have a couple more minutes left. Can you uh, leave us with some, with, with a few words of thought and then also tell people, um, remind us again, how and when we can get the book and how can people get in touch with you if they want to? Okay. My closing thoughts are, um, you know, as with everything, when it comes to trauma and when it comes to the black community in particular, knowledge is power. And the reason behind this book is to arm you with the knowledge that you need to be powerful in emancipating yourself from your own mental slavery. Mm. And if you're able to do that, there is no one who will have power over your mind or over anything else. And you can then become the person that you see yourself being. And so my hope is that people who read this book, who work with, interact with, live with folks that have urban trauma, not only understand them better, but understand themselves better um, in the hopes of creating a more harmonious, you know, uh, living environment for all of us and we will overcome this as we have overcome everything else you know i'm just putting a name to it um so in terms of getting in touch with me um we can you can go to www.misaakbar.com that has all the information in terms of the book and in uh there's a um a, uh, a form that you can fill out with your name, email, and information if you want the book. Uh, what I'm doing for people who are interested in pre-orders is that I'm gonna uh, send out signed copies of the book um, mm -hmm. to those who pre-order. Uh, very excited about that. Um, and the other place that it'll actually eventually come out is Amazon. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna have a big push when it comes to the Amazon, so I'll be sure to let you know so that you can tell your thousands of millions of followers that you have. <laughs> Um, because we have a very short time frame in mm -hmm. order for me to become a bestseller um, during the Amazon um, release. So there will be a couple of different release sort of times. It'll be staggered. Um, and, you know, and I'm right here in New Haven. So if, you have a practice here. So. Yes. Integrated okay. Wellness Group. Um, so it's beautiful to see what New Haven, New Haven can create. Right. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation with you and I look forward to reading the book. I'm going to go on a pre-order today. <laughs> I <laughs> certainly you. am.
Thank you very much for tuning in. You've been listening to Mornings with Mubaraka on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Until next week, reminding you to be a voice and not an echo.